Good morning. Happy Memorial Day weekend. Also graduation weekend for our seniors. So had a lot of good seniors graduate this year and that was exciting to see them and not see some of them anymore. It's exciting too. No, just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. All right. Well, I went over my message last night and that was uh, all the weekend and graduation parties and stuff. Uh, I go, I sit down on my bed. And I'm like, I'm going to go over this a few times, you know, try to leave me undisturbed for a little bit. And my mother-in-law walks in and I made it about halfway through it and my notebook's falling off to the side and I'm dead asleep on the couch. So hopefully that's a bad omen I don't, or not a bad omen um, that all of you aren't dead asleep here in a few minutes because it put me to sleep quickly. Um, but I was tired last night. Most of you guys know I'm a sports fan. Um, that's not real shocking news to anyone. Um, and I like to go to a few different events every year. I like, uh, tr this year I was fortunate enough even to go to a Warriors game. Someone here gave me some tickets, so, so we went to that. Um, and so most of you probably think uh, the NFL is my favorite sport, um, and the Super Bowl might be my favorite event, but you would be wrong. Um, I do like football a lot, but there's one event I like more than that. I don't know if anyone could guess or anyone knows what that might be. No, golf, okay, <laughs> cheerleading, not cheerleading, Baron. <laughs> Someone said golf, but one, what, what particular event? Does anyone have a... Masters. The Masters, every year that takes place in April in Augusta, Georgia, is my absolute favorite sporting event. I love it more than any other. Um, I, I watched the ceremonial first tee shot where they bring out the old players. And I just, I watched the shows that are about the history of the event. Just something about being at the same place every year. It, it's, it's really exciting to me and I really enjoy it. Well, getting tickets to this event, if you've ever tried to get tickets to it, you would know they're incredibly difficult to come by. Um, borderline impossible, just for a single day ticket to this event. Um, getting a lifetime badge to this event is really, really difficult. It makes getting season tickets to the Green Bay Packers and their 30-year wait list look like child's play to get a lifetime badge to this event. There's very few of them. And they give them out, and it basically gets you in to every day of the event for every year. It's like an ongoing lifetime season ticket. And it, it, it's incredibly difficult to come by. And so for the sake of my illustration, I'm going to just use this for a minute. So I want you to follow with me on it. Um, let's just say I knew someone with a lifetime badge to the Masters. And they came up to me and said, you know, you're such a great guy. You know, we love you so much. And I said, I know, I'm pretty awesome. Um, no, and they said, we want to give you our lifetime badges to the Masters. In a few years, we're going to give those. We're going to pass those on to you. We want them to become yours. And they said, we're going to promise them or will them to you. I would be blown away. What a great gift. I mean, if you like golf and you like the Masters, that would be overwhelming to someone to get something like that. And a few years go by and I think, okay, any day now. You know, they said it'd be a few years. They're going to give them to me. And they're going to give me these tickets. And a few years goes by and I get a phone call and I think, this is it. I see the caller ID. They're, they're telling me they're mine. And then all of a sudden they say, we know we promised you these tickets, but we really need a favor. And I'd say, okay, anything you need, just name it. What do you need me to do? Well, we need you to take care of our cat. And I'd be like, oh, I hate cats. But you know what? For master's tickets, you're, I'd take care of a cat, right? And so I take care of this cat and a little more time goes by and time goes by and I get another phone call and I say, okay, this is it. They're going to deliver on their promise. And then they say, you know what? We know you've been taking care of our cat. And we know we promised you these tickets, but now we need you to start taking our grandson to soccer practice. We're not able to do it anymore. Can you do that? And I'd be like, oh, I don't really enjoy soccer either. So now I'm taking care of a cat and going to soccer practice. Woo, 0 for 2. But sure thing, I'll do it. Whatever you need me to do if I'm going to get these tickets. And a little while, a little more time goes by and then they call me again. Hey, we need you to start mowing our lawn. 
I know we promised you these tickets, and they're going to be yours. They really are, but now we need you to mow our lawn. So now all of a sudden, I'm taking care of a cat, uh, going to soccer practice, uh, and mowing a lawn, which I don't mind as much, okay? So, but you know what? Eventually, what, what's going on is this is no longer a promise, correct? It's not a promise that they're delivering on. It's now a works-based obligation thing. I'm working for you to get something. That is no longer the promise guarantee that they said they're going to be yours. It's they're going to be yours if you do this. And they continue to add on to this. At some point, I would grow tired of that and be like, I just want what was promised to me. And today as we get into our message and continue our series on breaking the law, we're going to look at God's promise and then the law that came after it. And the law did not make his promise come true. God's promise was established before the law was in existence. Do you guys remember who the Judaizers were as we've gone through the series in Galatians? Yeah, they were the group of people leading believers away from God. They, they were telling people they didn't need to fully rely on God's grace through faith in Christ alone, that they added Jewish laws and traditions to salvation. And so they took God's promise and they began adding to it. But you have to do this, but you have to do this, but you have to do this. And they continue to add to God's promise. So I'd like you to turn with me to Galatians 3 today as we continue going through the book of Galatians. And as I was preparing this, I struggled a bit um, in the early verses. And so I'm going to kind of, a lot of times we read through a full little passage and then go back. I'm actually going to just take it verse by verse. uh, Because for me, that really helped me understand, especially around this first point. So the first thing I saw as I was going through The verses today in Galatians 3, and we're starting in verse 15, is this, is God's inheritance for us is based on the promise, not the law. God's inheritance for us is based on the promise, not the law. Let's read verse 15. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life, just as no one could set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. And I spoke in my opening about getting a promise and then people adding to that promise. And what Paul says in this opening verse is very similar. How many of you in some form have a last will and testament established? Any few of you? Okay. Not, well, you can go get a will done, some of you. Um, <laughs> but some of us have that done. What you've done is you've determined what you want to happen to your estate and possessions upon your passing. Okay, you want it to be used in a certain way, directed to certain people, or directed to certain organizations. You've determined how you want it to be split. And once that's been uh, filed with the state, someone can't come in behind it and change it. I mean, there's power of attorney and other things, but just as a general rule, people can't come in behind you and change what you've established, the covenant that you've established. And this is how we protect our assets for a family. And Paul's trying to establish the order of things so people could understand you don't just get to change this or you don't change God's promise because you want to. And he uses this example of a covenant or a testament that's been ratified to get people to understand that. And so he's, he's trying to first thing, get them to see, once a covenant or a testament has been established, you don't come in behind it and change it to what you think it should say or what you want it to say. And so we're going to jump down to verse 16 in a second, but with this framework in place of understanding that you can't violate or change a previously established covenant, Paul's going to speak about the covenant that was previously established. And that previously established covenant is known as the Abrahamic covenant. And you can find that in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. We're going to look at one verse of it in just Genesis 12, 3. And it says this, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And this is really a multi-layer promise to Abraham. 
Yes, directly the people around him were blessed. As he was blessed, the people were blessed through him. But on a much greater scale, how were all the peoples of earth blessed through Abraham? They're not blessed because Abraham lived long ago necessarily. How does that relate to us today? Well, we're blessed from Abraham because of the seed that came from that promise, Christ. All the nations are blessed through Christ. And the promise was that a Christ would come, the seed would come who would be a blessing to all people. We can read verse 16 now where Paul's talking about this, and he says, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. The promise of the Abrahamic covenant is often just looked at as the plurality of the Jewish people. Like that is just, it's just to them. Well, that, that's, that's not what Paul's saying here. The seed was singular, who was promised to Abraham. The son of Abraham that would be a blessing to all people is Jesus. It wasn't Isaac. It ultimately was Christ is who he's referring to. We are blessed not because of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Our eternal blessing, our eternal inheritance isn't based on them. Now we're blessed through their lineage from which came Christ, absolutely. But Paul, once again, is already opening the door for Gentiles and saying it's not about your Jewish heritage your Jewish ancestry, the Jewish traditions, or the Jewish law. It's about the promise that God made Abraham and established through him. In Acts 26, 6, Paul even says, my hope, when he's standing before uh, Agrippa in Festus, and he says, my hope is in the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham, which was Christ. It wasn't based on his Hebrew lineage or being a Jew. Okay? 17 now. It's not a trick question, but I'm going to ask you, which came, like, it's not which came first, the chicken or the egg. Which came first, the promise or the law? The promise came first. Let's read verse 17. What I mean is this, the law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. The law of Moses does not invalidate or supersede the promise God made to Abraham. At the time when God made the Abrahamic covenant uh, to Abraham, there was no Mosaic law. We find the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12, very early on. Where do we find the Mosaic law? Well, this happens 430 years later. You have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. They go into captivity. They're in captivity in Egypt. And then they come out of captivity in the Exodus, and we begin to find God's law. But now these Judaizers are uh, interpreting the promise of God in reverse through the lens of the Mosaic law. There was no Mosaic law when God established the covenant and the promise with Abraham, but now they're interpreting that covenant through the, through the law. And that's not what, what was supposed to happen. The law of Moses given to the Jews doesn't render God's promise impotent all of a sudden. The law of Moses was not what was going to save people. The law has a different purpose, and we're going to look at that later as we continue going. Paul writes about this in Romans. He says in Romans 4.13, It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. From early on, it was established salvation was through faith. It never was intended or meant to be through the law. Now in verse 18 here, For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. And at the beginning of my message, I kind of used that ticket example in the last will and testament um, that you can't come behind and change it. And Paul has just made these very same claims 
claim concerning the inheritance that God offers. The law came after the promise. God's promise or his inheritance was established through Christ, not through the law. And the law came 430 years later and doesn't change what he had already established. Our inheritance is secure because of the promise, not because of the law. Our internal inheritance is secure because of God's promise. He delivers on his promise. He doesn't go back and forth and say, oh yeah, you need to do this, and oh yeah, you need to do this. It's secure because of his promise, not because of the law that came later. The natural follow-up question I, I had in looking at this is this. Well then, if our inheritance is secure based on the promise or the, and, and not the law, what's the point of the law? And so Paul's going to address that in these, in these next few verses. What's the point of the law then? If our inheritance is based on God's promise, why do we have it? So the first thing I saw in that is the law shows man's sinful nature. And Paul's going to answer that question, saying it shows man's sinful nature. He's not validating the claims of the Judaizers. Some of this sometimes can look like, well, he maybe felt like he was a little harsh on these guys. Now he's going to validate the purpose of the law. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying to step back and say, oh, this is it, and I'm validating their claims. He's saying there is a point to the law, but it's not what these guys have made it. So let's read verse 19 and 20 now in Galatians 3. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed, and the seed he's referring to is Christ, capital S, referring to Christ there, to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. That mediator was Moses. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. And again, a reference to the triune God or the, the, the God in three persons unified. Um, the covenant or promise God made Abraham is, is at the center of his relationship with man. That's the coming Christ that allows us to have a relationship with him. But as mankind, we're sinful. It's established in Romans chapter 5. We can see we're sinful by nature. We're sinful from the very moment we're born. Before there was a recorded law, we were already sinful. Having the law recorded by Moses did not all of a sudden make us become sinful. Was it wrong to kill someone before Moses' law was recorded? Yes. The primary functions of the law was to reveal to people that they were sinful, but we were already sinful before it was written down. The law did not create sin. And the law does not abolish sin or lead to salvation. With the law in place, it shows us that we're sinful by nature, but we're also sinful by choice. There's no way around it. So whether we acknowledge it or not, either side of the coin shows us that we're sinful. We're sinful because we're born into the lineage of Adam, and we're sinful by the choices we make, which the law written down shows us. That I've chose to break all these laws as well. And so either way we look at it, we're sinful. How many of you have ever dealt with a kid um, who just would never admit they did anything wrong? Maybe it was one of your own or someone else in some capacity of teaching or volunteering somewhere. But at some point, most of us have probably dealt with a, a teenager or a young person or a kid who just would never they admit they did anything wrong. We had one of those in our youth group, um, not here, a um, long time ago. But he would never admit anything, he did anything wrong. We could catch him in the very act of it. Well, I didn't know I wasn't supposed to do that. And sometimes we are that way with God. Well, I didn't know I wasn't supposed to do that. And so God made sure, no, here's the written down law. You aren't supposed to do that. There's no more saying, well, I didn't know. I plead ignorance. You know, that's how a lot of us want to do things. I'll just do it, ask for forgiveness later, okay? We plead ignorance. There is no more ignorance in God's standard. The law written down shows us. It revealed what was already true. We're breaking it. 
We're breaking the law. And we're sinners. And we're sinners by nature and sinful by choice. And the law reveals that to us. The next thing we see about the law is that it cannot impart righteousness. In verse 21 and 22. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that can impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But the scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin, so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So Paul asks another question in these verses. And the answer is that the law is not contrary or in opposition to the promise, because the law can't save. The law cannot impart righteousness. Their function is completely different. So if I ask you the question of, of who would win, the, the Oakland Raiders, the Golden State Warriors, or the Oakland Athletics, well, who would win what? They're different sports. They're not in competition with each other. Their functions are different. You can't, th- there's no real comparison here. But yet we do that so often, we don't realize the law's function is different. It can't even impart righteousness but sometimes we use the law and put it on comparison with our salvation through grace by faith. They're completely different. There's no comparison, and Paul says that. They're not in opposition to each other. The law shows our sinfulness, but cannot impart righteousness. These Judaizers that insisted on following the law as part of salvation, uh, Paul once again says that's not the intent of the law. We say, why are you using it that way? The law wasn't even given for that purpose. And now you're using it and tying it into salvation? You're you're twisting this gospel. You're messing it up. If there was a law that can impart righteousness, then our salvation would have been based on the law. But there's not a law that imparts righteousness. And our salvation is not based on that. We are all sinners whether we know it or not. And knowing the law better and fulfilling the law uh, better than someone else doesn't remedy our sinful condition. It doesn't change our sinful heart. The law condemns us by showing we're sinful, but it cannot impart righteousness. It's in acknowledging our sinfulness and that we need a Savior that now we can be made heirs to the promise of God through the seed of Christ. Andrew Murray, a Christian preacher and missionary in the 1800s and early 1900s said this, to convince the world of the truth of Christianity, it must first be convinced of sin. It is only sin that renders Christ intelligible. And this is one of the purposes of the law. To fully convince us we're sinners and to show us that we fall short, to get us to the point of acknowledging now we need this Savior. Now we need to be made righteous. But that can't happen through our ability to fulfill the law. So then how is righteousness obtained? And even when I phrase it that way, the problem is revealed. We often think to ourselves, well, how is righteousness obtained? The answer to that is righteousness is not something we can obtain. And it so easily drifts into our mind that something we obtain or we achieve or we get. Righteousness is not something we obtain. We can't obtain it. Jesus was righteous. And his righteousness is credited to us through faith in Christ. That's the only way we're made righteous. It's not a work-based thing that I can go out and obtain it. I can't go do enough good deeds. I can't go do enough fulfilling the law to obtain righteousness. It all comes back to Christ and his righteousness imparted to me through faith. And this was the whole point of the book as we started at the very beginning when Martin Luther nailed up his theses on the door. 
It's because he saw a workspace system going on around him, and he said, this doesn't jive with what I'm reading in the book of Galatians. This, do, this, this doesn't work. This faith through Christ alone is for salvation, and you're saying you have to do this, this, and this, the same as these Judaizers were telling people. And so while the law shows us we're sinners, it cannot take us out of that state. It cannot impart righteousness to us. That can only come through Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul again says it this way, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we in him might become the righteousness of God. We're righteous through Christ, not through anything we can obtain. Romans 3.22, the righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew or Gentile. Paul again establishes righteousness is through faith in Christ. It's not based on our works, and it's not based on our ethnicity or our Jewish heritage. So you that are Gentiles have very, just as the same access to the promise of God that God made to Abraham and that eternal inheritance. There is no distinction anymore. There's no difference because now our faith in Christ makes us heirs to the promise. Our faith in Christ makes us righteous. It wasn't anything we did. So the law shows we're sinful, and it also says, but it cannot impart righteousness to you. That's only through faith. The last thing we see that the law did, the law was our guardian in verse 23 through 25. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now, this, now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So we already established the promise came before the law. And the law was added after the promise not to bring about salvation, but to reveal man's own sinful condition and our own humanity, our sinfulness. For the Jews, more specifically at this time, the law was added to protect them from the destructive results of sinful activity. Um, in this regard, the law functioned as a guardian. God kind of put his constraint on man and in particular the Jewish people saying, don't go down this road because the, the sinful destruction that awaits you. And so it's kind of the guardian or protector. I was at a graduation party yesterday and, uh, for Danica, and, and Rome actually said this, so I'm going to steal it from you. Um, what she said, but he, he said that uh, Satan doesn't show you and sin doesn't show you where it wants to take you. It doesn't show you the end result. It just wants to take you a step down the road and then another step down the road until ultimately takes you the path of destruction and so God in the law did put a guardian of saying almost a head like a protector like don't do this but that still doesn't impart righteousness but he's kind of trying to protect people even non-believers benefit from God's law in our society the established law of God is, is serves around the world people may not acknowledge that but it, but it does serve in other countries much of man's established laws and countries and its root based back to this Judeo-Christian value and laws. The word here that was used to describe laws, the guardian, was the word pedagogue. And this would have been a slave employed by a Greek or Roman family to take care of a child from the ages of about 6 to 16. And this person was to watch over their behavior, to discipline him, to teach him, to correct him. And Paul is showing that this purpose, though, while valuable, is temporary. It wasn't meant to be the permanent solution. It was a temporary solution. As the child becomes a man, the guardian is no longer necessary. Once we come to faith in Christ, we no longer need the guardian the same way we did before. We don't need the custodian found in the law. The law does not protect our salvation or our inheritance. 
Our salvation is now secure through Christ and faith in Christ, not in our ability to uphold the law. If we are true believers, hopefully our desire, what should happen, our desire to love him and live for him is now the driving force and center point of our life. We no longer need the guardianship of the law because if we're living to love God supremely and others sacrificially, we're going to fulfill the law naturally. Jesus says this when the Pharisee lawyer asked him the question in Matthew 22, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and all the prophets hang on these two commandments. If sinful people were allowed to run rampant with no guidelines, the world would be a rough place. And so you could see it, some of you, if you've ever been to countries where there's not, a, not really an established law or an enforced law, it can be very corrupt, very hostile, not a place that you're wanting to visit as a tourist. So the law has this point, but it, it, doesn't, it doesn't change our eternal state. It's not changed by these laws being in place. The law has a purpose of being a guardian or a tutor or an instructor, But God's law also shows us that none of us are innocent. We were all guilty in some way. And even as I wrote this, I I was thinking God's law is, is trying to mitigate the disaster we would all be as sinful people. Man, we were sinful as depraved people, the things we can do to each other and other mankind as sinful people when sin's allowed to run rampant. Um, it can be disgusting. We see, I mean, we saw, we saw it on the news just this last week, right? People targeting events where children are at. Man at its core in our sinful nature when allowed to run rampant. It, it would be, it, it's disgusting when we think about it. When we look at our own depravity, but God's promise is trying to take those disasters and turn them into new creations that are fully restored and made righteous through faith in Christ. He doesn't want to leave us in that state. So some application questions. Have you admitted you're a sinner? If the law's primary, one of the primary functions of the law is to show us we're a sinner, have, have you done that? Um, we say it often at, at Mountain View Church, the ABCs of Salvation. And what we're trying to do is take something that's one of the most important things you can hear and put it into a simple, easy-to-remember form. And, and what we talked about this morning is kind of that in a much more descriptive manner. If we don't understand we're sinners in need of a Savior, then the gospel message of Christ is irrelevant to us. If we're not in, in need of that Savior, then why, why do we need to hear about it? Why do we need to be saved? And the law shows us that we cannot do all this. It's not the permanent solution. So do you realize it? Have you admitted it? You're a sinner by choice. And if you haven't come to that point, if you say, not me, I'm a good person. Well, bad news for you is, according to the Bible, you're a sinner by nature, even if you're not at a point where you admit it by choice. Admitting we're sinners in need of a Savior is the first step we take in in coming to salvation. Next, it's believing that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave. And lastly, we choose to place our faith in Christ alone. And that's the book of Galatians repeated in a short version. Salvation comes through God's grace alone by faith in Christ alone. Are you counting on the law or faith to impart righteousness? A lot of people are going to die and be separated from God in hell because they were counting on the law to impart righteousness. They were striving to be good people their whole life, and yet they're going to find out good wasn't good enough. Everything they did was, I was trying to be a good person. I was trying to be a good person. 
what are we saying at that? I'm trying to fulfill these laws. I'm trying to do these good deeds. Our ability to uphold the law will never and cannot impart righteousness to us. That only comes through faith in Christ. We have some things in our culture we say, and I think they're well-meaning, but, but they're great. They, they can be very misleading. Um, one of those things we say in our culture is believe in yourself. Um, I had a professor who had a funny saying about that, but I'll, um, probably borderline inappropriate even at a Christian school, but it was funny. Um, but often, often this is, in, in good meaning, it's just us trying to give confidence to a person to accomplish a certain task. But we have this entire generation that's either grown up or is growing up that's being told this stuff of believe in yourself. Just believe in yourself. And this saying is basically saying you're just whatever, fill in the blank, believe that you can do it. Um, but biblically, what do we find? That's not true. When it comes to salvation, we're not good enough. Believing in ourselves doesn't have a good end result. Believing in ourselves results in destruction. So we got to be very careful here how we say that. And I understand we phrase it, but we can't let a generation and our kids here say that, believe in yourself so much that they think, I don't, you know what, I don't, need, I don't need a God. I believe in myself. I'm good enough. What was it Chris Farley used to say? I'm, or the guy on Saturday night, I'm good enough, smart enough, I'm good enough, and doggone it, people like me. You know, this, but, but we can't continue that believe in yourself mentality when it comes to salvation. It's absolutely, do not believe in yourself. Believe in Jesus for salvation. But so often it's rely on yourself, believe in yourself, trust in yourself. And that runs very counter to what the Bible says of no. Uh, for myself, I'm sinful. For myself, I'm not good enough. In my own deeds, I'm a sinner lost. I need to be saved. And so don't believe in yourself. And then the last thought, do you still need a babysitter? The law was meant to be our tutor, and another word for that is uh, the way they meant it was a babysitter until we came to faith in Christ. It was meant to keep us in check. But parents out there, if you had a student graduate this week and they're, they're getting ready to leave to go to college, can you imagine if you get ready to go out on a date with your spouse and you've got your 18 or 19-year-old student there at house, the house and you say, okay, we're leaving for the night. And they said, well, wait, mom, who's babysitting me? Who's taking care of me? Like, no one is. You're old enough. You're responsible enough. You're taking care of yourself. Grow up. Mature in your faith. Sometimes we begin to put these laws back on ourselves because we just haven't matured enough in our own faith and we still like want, well, I need a babysitter, basically. I need a tutor. I need a guardian. I need all these rules and regulations to follow Christ because I, I haven't grown up on my own. So I need someone to still be the babysitter for me. Some of us, we need to grow and mature in our faith. Well, I don't need a list of laws. I'm, I'm following God. Going back to what Jesus said, all the law of the prophets hang on those two things, loving God supremely and others. We don't always need a babysitter. If you believed in Christ, you're now the adopted son or daughter of God, and Ron's going to get into that more next week. But you're his adopted son or daughter, heirs to the promise. You have the same Holy Spirit that any other believer has. The same Holy, Holy Spirit that resided in Paul resides in you. So we no longer need that babysitter the way they needed it a time ago. We're heirs to the promise. Christians of all people should be able to love our life. Our promise of salvation, our eternal inheritance is secure. 
we look at God's promise and know that even in the times we've messed up, our salvation wasn't earned or based on our ability to earn it, and it's not kept based on our ability to earn, earn it or maintain it. Our salvation comes through the fulfilled promise in Christ. In our house, when Ryan was a little boy, he would always want to play cowboys or army or anything that involves shooting. And, and I know California, probably some of you are gasping, we use toy guns. No, <laughs> Central Valley, we're safe, all right? So we, we, we but we would, we'd use these toy guns and it would involve, you know, everything had to be involved shooting, hunting, anything. Well, you could get shot like a thousand times and still keep fighting. It, there was no death, okay, in a sense. But there was one word, if he used it when he shot you, that was it. It was like instantaneous death. And I don't know where he came up with this word, and he's laughing. Maybe he remembers the word. Do you remember the word, son? You don't remember? You might remember after I say it. The instantaneous death word was Pam shoot. And I don't know how Pam shoot, if your name is Pam, I don't know how that came incorporated with instantaneous death. But there was no more fighting. If he shot you and it wasn't just bang, bang or pulling, you know, shooting his toy gun. If he shot you and said, Pam, shoot, that was it. War was over. You were dead. He won. It's done. And there was no greater death blow than that. Well, in a sense, God has given us that ultimate Pam, shoot in Christ. That's it. The promise he made is fulfilled. The cross says it's over. It's done. The penalty for breaking the law that you can never live up to is paid. So why do so many Christians want to place this unattainable yoke of the law back on themselves? It's done. It was paid in Christ on the cross. It's Pam shoot. It's finished. It's dead. This unobtainable thing of the law is completed in Christ's death on the cross. And yet there's times where he's like, but I need it. Put this law back on me. Put this yoke of the law. And that's what these Judaizers were doing. And Paul comes in and says, no. You're, you're messing with the gospel message. The gospel message says faith in Christ alone. And when it comes to any morality or goodness you claim to have, you don't have it according to the Bible. And that's not out of a dislike for you. You may be a wonderful person. But biblically what the Bible tells us is even being a wonderful person and kind to people, maybe you even love cats more than me, <laughs> but you're still not good enough. And that's the case, I, uh, that's not just for you, that's for me, that's for everyone, that's for my kids, I love them dearly, but they're not good enough. I, I mean, I absolutely know that, and you know it about your own kids, but we're absolutely not good enough based on our own ability to follow the law. That only comes through faith in Christ. So I would encourage you, if you've been clinging to the law for salvation, man, let go of that. Amen. Our only hope for salvation is in God's fulfilled promise. That was in Christ. Our faith alone, in, in, uh, excuse me, God's grace alone through our faith alone. And today we're going to celebrate that, that the only thing that could pay that price was Christ. And we're going to take a moment where we remember his death on the cross as we take communion.